I'm too sexy for my foreskin. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> this is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer. Thrilled to be joined as ever. It would be worrisome if I weren't. By my co-hosts, Tablet Senior Writer Leah Leibovitz. It's editor at large for you, Hosanna. Indeed, indeed. I was, I think I was once on the masthead as editor at small. <laughs> yeah, is anyone ever editor at any other size? <laughs> now that I'm shrinking, now that I'm sort of past mid- the middle-aged hump, at 47, I think I'm actually getting shorter. I am. Although, if I you work editor. for the media company Medium, you are by definition an editor at Medium. <laughs> and tablet deputy editor Stephanie Button. Hello. That's all. That's all I got. You have been deputized. I have been deputized. That should be your sort of your, your catchphrase. Like after you've really read some of the riot act, you've been <laughs> deputized. Today, we have a lot to talk about. As those of you who have not been living in a cave know, there's some stuff that's gone down in the Jewish world and we want to talk about it. I also want to say we have a wonderful guest today and, and we're thrilled to have him on this show. Mark Podwall, dermatologist by day and major Jewish artist by night. And we want to talk to him about how he integrates those identities. This is really the most ridiculous iteration of a superhero. <laughs> Boss, I got this. By day, he's a dermatologist. By night, he's a serious Jewish artist. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch is the illustrator. But before we get to that, we do want to talk about the thing that's been weighing heavily on our minds for the past few days. It's it's Tuesday morning, and so it's uh, it's day three after the hostage situation at Temple Beth Israel in Colleyville, Texas, near Fort Worth, where a man came in with a gun and took hostage the four people who were inside the building that day. It was it was a situation where most of the people in shul that morning were streaming the services, but there were four people there. They were all held hostage and they got out alive. And then a SWAT team or the police or the FBI, it seems, killed the gunmen. So most of us have followed that in the news we, of course, have been following it as as Jewcasters, as Jewish podcasters, and, and and a lot of thoughts about what we were going to do with this with this show and with our community and with the J Crew. And um, for the most part, it's going to be a pretty normal show. But I do want to start by by downloading on what happened on Shabbat, and I want to start with Stephanie Butnick and and find out what her thoughts were that day. You know, there's something that felt distinctly creepy about this. Of course, there was the fact that there was you know a hostage situation in a synagogue for sure, but the fact that people learned about this while streaming it, it feels particularly of of this moment. You mean the congregants who were like watching it? Yeah, I mean, the service was being broadcast on Facebook Live, which, as you said, was where the majority of people were watching it. And you basically hear, and this audio is available online, you hear someone begin to take them hostage. And this this sense of people sitting behind a screen and not being able to do anything, of course, they called the police and that's when everything sort of came to light. But this sense of being part of your community and being behind the screen, I mean, there was just something very, very, very hyper-virtual about it that just really feels distinctly creepy. And then, of course, this this many ways played out on social media. People in our own Facebook group were posting about it. Like, right at the beginning, you knew there was a hostage situation. And this ended up being an 11-hour standoff, which means that for a long time, we didn't know anything. And so you were like refreshing your feed if you are a person who's online on Saturdays. By the way, there are people who didn't find out about this till sundown. I mean, the manner in which it happened and the manner in which it was mediated. Right. So anti-Semitic. Not only are you holding a shul hostage, but you're doing it on Shabbos. I mean, dude, we pray on Wednesdays too. And most of us are free to like follow this. Come on, I man. just And I just think this anxiety and nervousness, much of it very well placed. And then some of it just sort of like anxious energy I think, like, bubbled to the surface. And there was a lot of people saying, like, why is no one writing, you know, why is no one paying attention? And no one knew anything, right? Like, you could only say so much at all these media organizations. And, you know, actually, yesterday the Times came out with, like, a very good piece with the rabbi explaining what happened start to finish. But that takes a long time to get. And I think we were all in this weird moment of limbo where we just didn't know what was happening. And we didn't know if everyone was going to be okay. We didn't know who this guy was. It's not just this moment of limbo. It's also, and and look, you know, this, this of course came, let's make this tragedy all about us for, for a second, may we? Yeah. Uh, because as soon as things started going down, we started getting kind of frantic messages from, from friends and colleagues at Tablet Magazine and also a lot of listeners of this here show saying, basically, do something. You know, what do we know? What can you tell us? Which at one and the same time is so incredibly touching because that's exactly how I felt. Like I was sitting there completely helpless saying, I just want to be, like, I want to know more. I'm I'm terrified. I'm so, you know, I really need this information. But at the second time, kind of maddening that there is this expectation that all of us, and especially those of us who are in sort of this, you know, quasi-professional Jewish sphere, immediately kind of spring into some action mode that only highlights how completely helpless we are in this situation. I mean, we don't know anything. We can't do anything. 
and and we live on this like quivering web of never ending information that demands to be fed and we want more and more and more of it and it just heightens our anxiety so stephanie and i were talking and and of course we always have this discussion amongst all of us here at the podcast whenever something terrible happens to the Jews, which, you know, and something terrible happening to the Jews can be everything from from Tree of Life with 11 Jews killed to some sort of conflagration in Israel that threatens Jews or takes Jewish lives to something like this, um, to just a a really particularly ugly and newsworthy act of anti-Jewish vandalism. I mean, there's so much, right? And it it could literally lead the podcast every week. And of course, we don't do that. And that's not the podcast any of you would would want to hear. But we always have this question, not just with Jewish current events, but with current events more generally, right? With George Floyd, with a presidential election that doesn't go the way some people want or goes exactly the way other people want. Of How much are we going to respond to the world at large and its sadnesses and its tragedies? And I did have this, again, I'll use Stephanie's word, creepy feeling on Saturday that actually this one was going to feel sort of like the new normal to a lot of people. And I remember thinking, not only will the the traditional secular news sources that tend to underplay Jewish suffering underplay this one, which I think in some ways they did. Like the BBC that put the word hostages in quotation marks. Did you see that? It's amazing. I did see that. I mean, the media critic in me once, you know, wonders if that was before they knew if there were hostages inside. I mean, it's so weird that they put hostages in quotation marks. Like, what is what could hostages be a euphemism for? It's not like there's the sort of, I mean, terrorist, for example, is one of those words you put in quotation marks because there's a value judgment in it, right? Like, is it a terrorist? Is it a freedom fighter, right? But hostages, I mean, you're either a hostage or you're not a hostage. And, and then not to be outdone, the AP reported, you know, gunman takes synagogue hostage Demands have nothing to do with Jews or something like this. It, it, did you see this? It was the most unbelievable headline. It was an issue not relating. Yeah, but I mean, again, yeah. this was Not related was to happening. Jews. He just walked into a synagogue on Shabbos and held the rabbi hostage with a gun. I'm a little bit more sympathetic to this because, like, again, this was before anyone knew anything. And so, like, yes, you can be like, no one cares about Jews. But there's also a world in which, like, you know, it's hard when something happens if the authorities don't want to call it a hate crime yet. They want to, and you're like, this is obviously a hate crime. It's obvious to people who are watching, but there's sort of like a technical definition that something has to meet. Right. I think that news organizations are a little bit, like they hedge in a lot of ways. I'll give you an example of that, right? The people complaining that certain publications, the Times, but also others, didn't play this far enough above the fold early enough. That if you went to the website, it was below Novak Djokovic and below, you know, some COVID stuff and whatever. And that actually, you know, there is a way in which some of the larger legacy news organizations don't give stuff a lot of play until they know what's happening. And then today it was top of page A1 and everything. But here's the thing. I'm really interested in our job as Jewish podcasters, right? It's a different question if you're the Wall Street Journal or the AP or the New York Times. Like, what do we do? We have people in our Facebook group always and now emailing us and some of them have found our numbers and they text us. And it's very flattering, right? And saying, how are you going to help us heal from this? And I'll just speak very, very personally right now, which is that I do tend to put my head in the sand around sort of anything terrible. And then sometimes I decide to go report on it for two years out of my life. But initially anyways... I never feel I have much to add in the first week or two, which is one of my really big complaints about the people who are always saying it's your job to speak up and silence equals violence and all this stuff is sometimes there is a dignity and nobility in waiting. It doesn't mean you never speak up. It means that sometimes you say, I'm going to give it a few days or a week or two weeks and see what we know. And what's interesting is here we are from the perspective of Tuesday. I was at a meeting of local Jewish communal stuff going on in Connecticut. I won't say what board meeting it was or what group it was, but it was serious Jews, Jewish proud, people who care about Jewish self-defense. But but there were elders there and they talked about Zion. And yeah, and nobody talked about this at all, right? They There was budgetary stuff being discussed. There was other kinds of like, you know, talkless board stuff being discussed. Nobody talked about it. If after three days, it was, you know, they got out alive. Everyone exhaled a sigh of relief. Their way of processing was to have processed it already and want to do the business of being Jewish. And there is a time in Jewish life when, and I think that our podcast is often one of them where like we decided, of course, we're going to have Mark Podwall on this week because he's a rocking guest and he's doing Jewish and he's a freaking great dermatologist and we're going to keep living. And I think there's a Jewish value in that as well, or at least there's a personal survival value in that as well. For me, I can't do four or five mournful special episodes a year. Right. It's not just a survival value. Like if you want the extent of your Jewish engagement to go on quaking from one attack to another, if you want to let your emotional, communal, spiritual life be dictated almost exclusively 
by the armed bigots who hate you. hate. That's not our Judaism. Our Judaism is celebratory. It's meaningful. And it's what we decide to do because that's the meaning of being free. The weird thing is, once you knew none of the hostages were killed, right? Once you knew this wasn't like an out-and-out shooting, it is interesting to me how that shifted the calculus. It wasn't a tragedy. It's still a tragedy, though. Like, it's there's a way in which we are so, with this, just the rampant nature of gun violence in this country, if there's no life lost, it suddenly becomes like, okay, we're fine. But I'm very attuned to the fact that there's like deep trauma in this community now and, and in the broader Jewish community that this just happens now. And I don't want to brush that under the rug. And I don't want to forget that this is a community that still needs to recover from the fact that they welcomed someone in who looked like they needed a cup of tea and then got taken hostage. Like this is, this is Judaism in America right now. And like, yes, we don't have to quake and we don't have to live in fear, but like, I know there's a lot of people who like look for the exits now when you go to synagogue and like, let's just be real with that reality. Speaking of uh, of guns, can I tell you what I found most traumatic? And again, first of all, praise be to Hashem for ending this conflict swiftly and without any loss of Jewish life. Please, praise be to the rabbi who threw a chair at the guy. The chair, yeah. Here's what I found absolutely, you know, heartbreaking. It was a, a headline in Times of Israel that says, Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker, the mensch liked even by the man who took him hostage. You know what I would like the headline after a case like this to be? A headline that would make me very happy. Mm-hmm. Not, oh, look, he was so nice. Even the man with a gun liked him. I would like the headline to be, badass freaking rabbi shoots attempted filthy terrorist in the face with his gun because Jews defend themselves. I want every person walking into a synagogue contemplating malice to know that they have about 45 seconds to live before it all ends. Not 11 hours, not, oh, we'll throw a chair and then run for the doors and hope for the best. But you have 45 seconds before someone stands up and defends themselves. By the way, there was the synagogue president who says, even if I had had a gun, it wouldn't have mattered. I'm with you on the sentiment, but not about the gun part because this they defended themselves without guns. Stephanie, they did not defend themselves without guns. They threw a chair and they ran out the door. They hoped for the best and Hashem was with them. And I'm very glad that he was. But if you think that's a self-defense practice, it is preposterous. Now, don't get me wrong. Hallelujah and kudos to the rabbi. He kept his head. He was amazing under the circumstances. He threw the chair. He saved lives. But still, I would love to see a circumstance in which he or one of the congregants reached into the tallest bag, pulled out a Glock, and shot this filthy animal between the eyes as well he deserved. Because if you just sit around and wait for others as well-meaning as they are to defend you, then I don't think you've paid very close attention to the lessons of Jewish history. Well, let me say this. We already, you can see the Hosannas being given to the training that they got from Secure Communities Network, SCN, whose emails I get. That's absolutely ridiculous. Whose head now, Brad Orsini is, you know, was the Pittsburgh head and is of their, you know, local preparation efforts. Back then, he's been promoted to the national level. Obviously, more preparation training doesn't hurt. I'm actually very much against it for schools where the odds of being attacked are so low. And I think that active shooter training definitely traumatizes children. The costs are so high in terms of the emotional well-being of children. The help that it gives, the potential help is so low. Synagogues, if they want to bring someone in to, to train them about how to spot the exits and maneuver to be near the door, whatever, that's fine. But Hashem, help me. I think I'm about to be on Liel's side here. Look, I took the NRA training. I think I talked to you guys about this a couple years ago, right? Like I've shot mm-hmm. guns. I took the NRA training. But here's where I'm going with this. It's really, really hard to shoot a gun accurately. From about 10 feet, most people will miss a human target, especially if you're nervous. So the idea that we should all be going out and getting gun licenses and then packing heat is absurd. We would absolutely hit Uncle Morty and Aunt Sylvia in the third row if shooting from the sixth row. And who's to say what should happen in these days where only four people are in shul and then 40 people are streaming, right? That's kind of a different calculus. However, given week where maybe you're at a synagogue where there are 20 people to 200 people in there, should there be two or three people sitting in the pews, unidentifiable to whoever the assailant might be, who are good shots? Maybe they've been police, maybe they've been army, maybe they've just trained a lot, maybe they're gun enthusiasts, who are good shots, who could stand up and take someone out but they're not the guard at the door who you know if you get past him or her, you're, you're home free. There's somebody in the pews who's going to turn up and shoot you. That, I think, would be... I mean, Leo, I think you once said to me, that's the only thing that would work. Were you the one who told me that, Leo? Yeah, the door should be wide open. No guard, no police, nothing. Everyone is welcome here. But you should know that if you try some shit, these Shlomo, Jews, Shlomo some of them, in the seventh at the very pew, least, Correct. And and by the way, again, look, I, I've been in, in similar situations. IRL, as the kids say, 
yes, I agree with you that a lot of people out of nervousness, I don't want Aunt Sylvia to pull out her Glock and start <laughs> shooting Morty in the face. But Aunt Sylvia but was with Dr. Ruth in the Haganah. That's exactly right. who you want to pull but, out her Glock. But I agree with you that, that uh, you know, several people, and, and again, getting to the point where you could actually be pretty good at this and deploy within about 15 seconds, pull something out of your tallest bag, take aim and shoot is is freaking a very, Hard. very, very doable task. And he, here's the thing. If you don't want to do this, then you're making a choice. I'm so sorry to say it. I know it doesn't sound correct. You are making a choice to be a victim. Can I just say that I think something that may be eye-opening to people who are reading about this in mainstream media is the fact that synagogues have security training. Like, I don't know what diocese offers the same thing that, that has dedicated Christian organizations yeah. that focus on keeping churches safe. And I think that a lot of people, when reading those articles, are like, I think that is actually a window into Jewish life right now. And I think that is at least something useful is happening from this. But listen, all of our uh, love and prayers to Jews everywhere, but especially to humans everywhere, but especially the people in uh, in Koliva. We're so, so, so glad that you are are safe. And Baruch Hashem. By the way, I, I'm sorry, can, can we go back? Because like, now that we praise Hashem for ending this swiftly and peacefully, can we talk about the uh, the filthy animal who walked into the show with a gun for a second and and about the absolute hysterical comical moment the thing that was the funniest for me uh if i may use that word about this particular event is that he demanded according to the reporting i read this morning that the fbi or whoever connect him with rabbi angela bookdahl who is the (laughs) rabbi of central synagogue in new york simply because he thought it was the central synagogue (laughs) that united all jews in america how freaking funny is that? Well, and I'm thinking of, you know, poor Rabbi Shmuel Hertzfeld in Washington, who has recently left this shul, but for many years led the shul that it's Oheb Shalom, but he had renamed it the National Synagogue as a marketing move. And he's thinking, wait a second, they think Central Synagogue in New York is the, the main synagogue? What about National Synagogue in, in Washington, D.C.? Then there's poor Angela, who's probably, well, it's Saturday, so she probably has some sort of Shabbos she's routine. She's busy. Right? I was, it's a big day. She's, so she's busy. It's a big day. And she's sitting there trying to, you know, do her thing. And they're like, um, Rabbi Bookdahl, <laughs> there's a, a hostage taker in Texas who wants to talk with you. I mean, I just imagine the conversation between between the hostage taker and like his Al-Qaeda boss is like, Sir, I think I figured it out. There's a central synagogue. And then like three days later, uh, actually, no, there, there are like five branches of, of Judaism. And then two days later, it's like, actually, one of the branches just split into six other branches. Then a day later, actually, I just figured out that every rabbi in America considers him or herself to be the chief rabbi of America. Why are we even fighting these people? They seem to be doing a pretty great job fighting among themselves. Now that said, if there's any rabbi I think can talk down a hostage taker or keep him on the line or keep her cool and do the right thing, it is Rabbi Angela warnick yeah. who has been on our show. And for those of you who didn't know who this was, for those of you for, for whom this is a new name, go to episode 197 and it'll be in the show notes and we'll put it on Facebook as well. But uh, spend some time with her because she's she's remarkable. By the way, I just will say like the insidiousness of anti-Semitism is, is, is very clear in this instance, right? Like I'm going to use this synagogue to basically like access the levers of power in this country to get something done on behalf of someone in, in prison, right? Like I think that there was just like some real sickness here and it, it's it's just disturbing and I remain disturbed this is disgusting and this is upsetting and this is disturbing and it's disturbing on like the very, very, very micro level of what happened. But then it's disturbing on the fact that like, oh, I want the FBI to do to, to bend to my will. Let me just take hostages at a synagogue because that's what's going to get everyone's attention. It's it's sick. And I don't want to I don't want to paper over that. No, that's that's a fabulous point. I hadn't even thought of that. Right. This guy thinks that by taking hostage four Jews at a reform temple outside Fort Worth, Texas, he can get, you know, super max prisoners freed. That that's that's what you know. Get one Jew, and basically that person could make a call, and basically you can get a terrorist out of jail. That I hadn't even thought of that. If we may, supermax prisoners who got their PhD at Brandeis University, who wrote a letter to Barack Obama saying Jews control everything, please stop the Jews, and who are celebrated by Linda Sarsour and others in the super progressive community that a lot of Jews still stand with, which I find very troubling. That the Afia Siddiqui case is actually a very bad slash good litmus test of where we are right now, because this is a you know straight out and out terrorist who still has the love of support of a lot of people in our community. And, and I find that baffling. Liel, I do too. I'm, I'm getting that you don't want to free Mumia. Uh, not right now. <laughs> maybe, maybe on Wednesday. That'll hit a certain generation in the right spot. Mm-hmm. 
of the juice N O T J News of the Juice uh -huh. News of the Jews. We actually, we had a brief moment where we thought, do we do News of the Jews this week? And then we thought, honestly, yes. And not just because we want to keep living and that's our thing, but also because the News of the Jews this week, it really will put a smile on your face. I'm sorry. I almost feel like like the News of the Jews this week, we need to have like the Benny Hill, like, da -da 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 -da, like throughout the whole thing because it's just amazing. It actually may be the funniest News of the Jews ever. So Republican Doug Mastriano is announcing his bid for Pennsylvania governor. He's almost certainly going to face Josh Shapiro, who is the attorney general, who came to a lot of prominence, not only in the last election in certifying the results, but also was fairly active um, with the Tree of Life shooting and was very beloved of the people in Pittsburgh there. And he's, Shapiro's probably going to win this one, I think. But Mastriano, you know, pulling out all the stops, he he's a, a Christian <laughs> dude. He enters the race for governor by having someone come up to the, the dea, somebody known as, as Pastor Don, and offer a prayer and blow a shofar. And we should we should have a listen to this. I believe God is about to manifest himself, brother. He has to, because we cannot keep going the way we're going. Amen? Now, this is really interesting because it turns out that I didn't great. know this. I didn't know this because I'm off my game as a religion reporter. It turns out that a lot of evangelicals are now getting into shofar blowing. This guy, by the way, is a pretty decent Takiya Godola. Like he's got right. the breath. He's clear. <laughs> this is not his first rodeo with the shofar. But um, I have to say, you know that here on this podcast, we're pretty chill about cultural appropriation. We, we're okay with the fact that the world stole our bagels. I am not okay. <laughs> with Christians blowing shofars at anything they think is cool. Like maybe once a year. But you know what? Even if they took it for Christmas and wanted to say like the Savior is born shofar blow, that, that'd be weird, but okay. But frankly, if if the declaration of candidacy of every wingnut Republican now becomes an occasion for a shofar blast. But it's that it's like a battle cry. And you're like, that's not what that's for. Like, I just, right. I think it's, it's weird. I don't like it. I want to know like, because it's, it's like not easy to get a shofar, right? There's like the guy <laughs> that does it. It's like the sofa. You need the scribe to do the Torah. Like there's a very specific industry. And now I'm like, oh, are there now just like a bunch of randos going to the shofar guy being like, I need three of them. I've got a lot of campaign stops coming <laughs> the up. The big one, the swirly ones, the big horn with the swirls. I want more turns in the horn. I want like a rapper shofar. I want like a little diamond yeah. encrusted and shit. Um, I feel exactly the opposite. I am elated and delighted. And by the way, I'm particularly delighted that it's used to something so trivial and stupid like announcing your campaign. Like, Because if you're going to culturally appropriate, don't actually appropriate solemnly, appropriate vulgarly, like just to have some fun with it. And not only that, I want to encourage anyone who wants to, to, to look deep within Jewish tradition. I want kaparot made in, in campaign stops. I want You want them swinging chickens over their heads? over heads. I want yeah. like, what, what else do we have? I, do, do mikvah. Should we just, when they apologize now, just get a, just go slaughter a goat? Get yourself a scapegoat? Go, go deep. By the way, I didn't realize shofars were part of like the January 6th stuff at the Capitol. Like shofars were there. And it's like, Stop and there's people like so far so good. No, it's like a cosplay <laughs> that I'm, I'm I'm very uncomfortable with. It is it's it's, very weird. It's Rosh Hashanah cosplay, which by the way, for years I thought was pronounced cosplay. I didn't cosplay. realize. It was, I didn't realize it was pronounced. It's a a mashup of costume play, right? And I just for years thought it was cosplay. When you hear some guy in rural Pennsylvania say Shvarim Turab, bro. You know you've arrived in America. <laughs> I also, if anyone, and by the way, here's a task for someone bored in the J. Crew. If anyone can find Pastor Don for me, because none of the news sources figured knew who this pastor was with the shofar. And he's probably a Western Pennsylvania evangelical Christian, right? Who Mastriani gets to be a shofar blower. But if he's the guy, if Pastor Don is the Christian shofar blower, we want him on our show. Like that would be that would be a really baller Gentile of the week. That would be money. Pastor Don, we want to rock with you, my brother. There was a piece last year in Vox by Alyssa Wilkinson about this like evangelical embrace of shofars. And she says when she was growing up, 
it was sort of a part of her evangelical community. Whoa. She says shofars were blown at Christian conferences and gatherings, often those with roots in Pentecostal or charismatic communities. So basically, I'm like, maybe there are people who are our listeners who have grown up in, in communities, non-Jewish communities where shofars were, were, were in the mix. Can, we, can I just say, it's so interesting how when you get really like low church Christian, when you get really into, the closer you get to snake handling, the more they want to be Jews. <laughs> the more they want to be Jews. Like all of a sudden, you know, they're really into college. Like, you get into like a real rural Pentecostal church. <laughs> they want our church. satyrs. They're oh talking about satyrs. They're talking about I'm Elohim. I'm sorry, Mark. I'm sorry to disturb. Can I have this on a t-shirt? The closer you get to snake handling, the more they want to be Jews. It's so true. They want and, it a la carte. And only we can get it a la carte. <laughs> oh my God. You can't be bagel Christians, but you can be a bagel Jew. <laughs> We're the ones who get to pick and choose like this. You guys, you want the whole schmear like we have a bait din. We will convert you. But you don't just get the shofar and the, the seder. Snakes sold separately. <laughs> you know, you may think, Mark, that this, that this particular uh, piece of news of the Jews may not be topped. But Stephanie, I hear we have something even better. We do. And this this one, I mean, I'm glad you're letting me say this one because this, this seems like way more in your wheelhouse. Stephanie, do you remember... Right said Fred. One hit wonder. Right said Fred. Yeah, I'm too sexy for my shirt. Okay. Too sexy. Anyway, so now it turns out, you know, it's like every now and then you hear that like some beloved band of the 70s or 80s or 90s is actually, it turns out has views that we might not, uh, might not agree with. Um, (laughs) So this is according to the Mirror, the UK paper. um, Pop Nice Guys, Right Said Fred stunned fans by sharing a web video of neo-Nazis spouting (laughs) racist conspiracy theories and anti-vax madness. The I'm Too Sexy star is promoted a live stream starring the leader of Patriotic Alternative, described as the UK's biggest fascist threat. Anyway, these two brothers, I didn't realize Wright said Fred was two brothers, Fred and Richard. So basically they use some, you know, the Telegram messaging app to share a link to like all of their fans. And of course their spokesperson was like, this was an error. <laughs> and then of course the guy whose stuff they shared was like, I never thought Wright said Fred would share my content. Like, this is so exciting. <laughs> Anyway, well, there's a few a few finer points we have to get to here. They use this messaging app to share the link to 5,600 fans. So that's exactly how big the Right Said Fred fandom community in England is. There are 5,600 <laughs> people in the British Isles on, in Great Britain. Oh Some God. of them are in Wales, no doubt. I think they're big up by uh, in Scotland. I think Glasgow has a strong community. But in the whole of the UK, 5,600 fans of Right Said Fred. And then... The fact that that the paper called Patriotic Alternative the UK's biggest fascist threat, I feel like there's some other fascist threats out there saying, wait a second, Patriotic right. Alternative. We're, we're not, we're not the biggest? <laughs> what? They're, come on, we're much bigger than... Here's the thing. This, this is the thing that this teaches us. I think the fascists are a lot like the Jews are like, what? You call them the biggest fascists? That's, we have twice the as many fascists, fascists in our meetings. And we have shofars with ours. <laughs> <laughs> My question is, is tweeting out or messaging out some sort of bizarre anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, a last-ditch move, sort of like releasing a sex tape when you're trying to stay relevant as a Hollywood star or starlet. Do you think that basically Right Said Fred was like, look, we were at 10,000 fans five years ago. We're down to 5,600 hardcore I'm Too Sexy listeners. We got to do something to get back in this. Oh, wait a second. We'll just tweet out an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Like that'll at least... So Fred and Dick are sitting there in, in their in their motor home and Dick says, you know, how about I'm too sexy for the Jews? And Fred says, right, bro. There we go. It's good. There we go. Well, show them how it's done. I'm too sexy for the Jews. Too sexy for the Jews. So sexy, jacuz. And I'm... Too sexy for Aunt Frank. Too sexy for Aunt Frank. Jews own all the banks. And I'm too sexy for Dr. Ruth. Too sexy for Dr. Ruth. Jews have horns, that's the truth. And I'm too sexy for Treblinka. Too sexy for Treblinka. I'm not much of a thinker. Cause I'm a fascist. You know what I mean. And I like my mustache when it's littler. A bit brittler. Yeah, I like my mustache. I like my mustache just like Hitler. By the way, I, I should note, I'm sorry. I should note that our producer, Josh Cross, just changed his Zoom ID to Reich said Fred, which is a band that must now exist. Must exist. Um, and rounding out what may in fact be the best week of News of the Jews ever. Liel, you want to take us to Ann Arbor, Michigan, home of, of frequent contributor Gabrielle Savitt Woods? What's going on in Ann Arbor? Over in Ann Arbor, Michigan, 
the University of Michigan Board of Regents fired the school's president, Mark, the unimprovably named Mark Schlissel, over an alleged relationship he conducted with a person who worked for the university, a relationship that the Board of Trustees found to be inappropriate. But as this investigation was going on, the emails between the president and the employee, which we should say, you know, both consenting adults, were revealed. And one item in particular caught our attention, which is which is President Schlissel's sort of, shall we say, amorous techniques. He wrote uh, his paramour an email that says, can I lure you with the promise of a commitment? Hey, baby, you hungry? Because I, I got some kasha varnishkas. How about you come to my office and some pcha? We could just have cholent all night long. I'll let you have the kishka. Oh, yeah. This, <laughs> I think, was disturbing. What a boss, man, to write this letter. Like, come here for my knish. It's the I best think, euphemism ever. I think boss man is part of the problem, right? Because as a uh, school's president, should not have been doing any of this. Yeah, I agree. Look, if this was indeed harassment or exploitation or anything inappropriate, of course, we deplore it. But if this was just a relationship between two consenting adults, I mean, we just right now don't know enough of the details. Still, a knish is a strong move. Yeah, the knish part is like particularly egregious. It is funny, though, that in like the JTA thing about this guy. You know, it's like when someone's like, it's the first time we've written about this guy. Let's find out what other people have written. We have a line in this piece that says, according to the Detroit Jewish News, Schlissel, who had a bar mitzvah but is not religious, became the school's (laughs) second Jewish president when he assumed the post in 2014. (laughs) So it's like, we're really, really, really grasping here. Wait, so do you think they were trying to just cast him out, basically? So like, he's not really one of us. Now now that we've discovered he's pervy, he's not really one of us. No, no, no. This was the piece that had been written when he he ascended to the role where they were like, Oh, I see. We can we can confirm he had a bar mitzvah, but he probably doesn't belong to a singer. Like it's very Jewish Jewish media. Like Drake, he had a bar mitzvah. We could have some schmaltz and flugelach <laughs> in my office. I think it's you know he's Mark Schlissel, but I think he really wanted to be Yona Schimmel, the Knish man. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> By the way, I think the only right thing to do, the only form of justice here, is to appoint Yona Schimmel, the president of the University of Michigan. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. 
Our Jew of the Week is Mark Podwall. He's a dermatologist and fine artist whose art has been featured in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, in the New York Times op-ed page, and so many other venues. I'm sure he's also a fine dermatologist, by the way. I mean, his technique. His current projects include a poster for each new Metropolitan Opera season, and his most current project is being our Jew of the Week. Mark Podwall, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. My pleasure. Have you ever been a Jew of the Week before? (laughs) No, but Mel Brooks once told me that I'm his favorite Jew. Wow. Were you his doctor? I'm not allowed to say, but it's been published online that I am. I should say, I was put onto your work by Judy Bloom, who's uh, an old acquaintance of mine. You may or may not be her dermatologist as well, correct? I am. Oh, I mean, she said, you've got to have this guy on. So so here we are. And so you are a, a dermatologist to the stars, as well as a, a leading artist and illustrator. And your work is seen in so many places. The question I have is, when did you decide that you were going to have both careers? When I grew up in Queens in the 1950s and 60s, if you did it very well in school and you were Jewish, you became a lawyer or a doctor. You did not become an artist. I always drew. And I always loved to draw, but I wound up in medical school to make my parents very happy. And in medical school, I started to do posters against the war in Vietnam. And I started to do political drawings about what was happening in the 1960s. And those drawings were then published as a book, The Decline and Fall of the American Empire. They were seen by the art director of the op-ed page of the New York Times. And for 40 years, I drew for the op-ed page. I always loved to draw. But I never looked at it as a profession. And I even did covers for the Journal of the American Medical Association. One of my professors, Edward Franklin, said, you know, if you want to pursue drawing, and I was going to be a surgeon, choose a specialty such as dermatology or radiology or pathology, and you'll have the time. Otherwise, with general surgery, you will not have the time. So the stereotype that my mother gave me of dermatologists, which is they go into it for the lifestyle and the free time, in fact, is is why you chose dermatology. It's not a slur on you. It's in fact why you chose it. Plus, dermatology is a visual specialty. And as an artist, I think I have a talent for visual acuity. And so in medical school, I was much better at diagnosing rashes on pediatrics than listening to murmurs on cardiology. What does a day look like? Is it sort of like, you know, seeing patients from, from eight to, you know, four, then drawing? Is, is there a process of sort of decompressing, of, of moving from entity A to entity B? Do you literally, you know, put on different clothes? Do you work in different spaces? How does it look? How do you make the switch? Well, certainly different spaces. I rarely, rarely ever would draw in the office. When I did draw, it was because Years ago, before there were faxes and scans and emails, sometimes the New York Times would call me and need a drawing by the next day to publish. So I might start thinking about it in between patients. Otherwise, I just didn't draw in the office. COVID, one of the few benefits that I had was then while my office was closed, I was able to do more drawing, knowing that I wasn't going to be in the office, often be tired afterwards and not be able to sit down and draw. So I wound up publishing four books in the last year. I just feel like you're the ultimate overachiever where it's like, okay, you could be a doctor or a lawyer. You're like, okay, I'll be a doctor and use the other half of my brain for something entirely different. But it sounds like these two pursuits supplement each other. They're pretty separate. If you want to be very imaginative in medicine, you'll probably be sued for malpractice. I was very fortunate to have designed the textiles for the 700-year-old synagogue in Prague, the Altnoy Shul. And when the textiles were dedicated in my speech, I mentioned that as a doctor, I believe in science, and as an artist, I believe in legends. And so they're very, very separate. But being an artist is a great escape from medicine. And I've been very fortunate not only to have talent, but to have been published by major publishers, whether Random House, Simon & Schuster, be published around the world. The Jewish Bestiary was also published in Italian, German, Czech and Polish. I have a copy of the Jewish Bestiary. I actually have the copy Judy sent me. And I'm dying to know, where did you, tell people what this book is for those who haven't seen it and how you came up with this idea, how you researched it. It's such an extraordinary book. A Bestiary is a medieval collection of descriptions on the appearance and habits of real or imaginary animals for moral and religious instruction and admonition. What happened was Arthur Samuelson, who was my editor at Summit Books, Simon & Schuster, He was the editor for the book I did with Elie Wiesel, The Golem. A representative for Dean Steinsaltz, who was a leading Jewish scholar, 
told Arthur that Steinsauce was interested in doing a bestiary. But it turns out he decided not to do the bestiary. So my editor said, why don't you do a Jewish bestiary? When I mentioned it to Cynthia Ozick, she liked the idea. And initially, we were thinking of doing a collaboration, which she wanted to model after Rudyard Kipling's Just Told Stories, where she would do five poems, and I would do the drawings for those poems. And so I would collaborate with Cynthia. And she, she wrote a three-page poem, The Nat Who Tormented Titus, which was brilliant. The Nat Who Tormented Titus? I love the title. I found it in my files yesterday. And so here's a few sentences from it. It wasn't a lion that defended Zion. Instead, it took a gnat to knock the tyrant flat. A veritable might, a moat that smote on the side of right, a virtuous midge of a tittle, a flea as proud as it was little. So <laughs> Cynthia was enthusiastic about doing it, but the problem was her publisher was, I believe, Knopf, and the idea was from Simon & Schuster. I, I just was loyal that I couldn't take that idea and go to a different publisher. So in the end, I didn't collaborate with Cynthia on it, although she did a, a fabulous poem. And then it turns out that Simon & Schuster turned it down, so it was published by the Jewish Publication Society. And that's the story. But you had to go find all of these animals in, in scripture, in Talmud, in Jewish legend. It, I mean, how did that research go? Elie Wiesel once called me his best researcher. My obsessive compulsive nature led me to finding this information. But what happened was when I did the first edition in black and white in 1984, there was no internet, there was no Google. So I had to go to the actual books. When I redid the book in color, and added nine more creatures, I had the internet to find all these obscure Talmudic sources, these Kabbalistic sources, medieval texts. And so the text for the color edition of the bestiary is a much more scholarly text. A lot of people will recognize your art from the work you've done for the Metropolitan Opera, but you also do a, a ton of Jewish art. And so I guess I'm wondering, is that sort of your version of Jewish expression in your life? Clearly, like just these names you've, you've mentioned, you know, Cynthia Ozick has said wonderful things about you. You've worked with Elie Wiesel. You sort of are, you've done so much in, in the Jewish artistic space. Is that your connection to Judaism in some way? It's my connection to Judaism. In that speech that I gave at the Altnoy Shul, I mentioned how Kafka described writing as prayer. And to me, drawing and my art is prayer. I've described myself as an orthodox, non-practicing Jew because I like things done the orthodox way as long as somebody else does them for me. It's, uh, <laughs> most, of my, most of my work is really on Jewish subjects, and that's what I, I have a passion for. When I first worked for the Metropolitan Opera, my first poster was for Nabucco, described as Verdi's Jewish opera. But because I love Mozart so much, I chose the next seven posters to be Mozart's most famous seven operas. And when I'm drawing and painting, I listen to Mozart. I was initially acquainted with your work by looking at it at the Metropolitan Opera. It's, it's absolutely stunning. And even if you don't know who the painter is, there is something that, that sort of screams Jewish about him. There's a very particular Jewish sensibility to it. And you look at it, it's like, it's, these are German operas that one not necessarily would have associated or pinged as Jewish. Do, do you find the sort of kind of like beating Jewish heart of these operas? Do you, or do you find it something like even a little bit subversive that here we are, you're taking Mozart and putting this Jewish veneer on him? To tell you the truth, I don't really see the Jewish association when I'm doing the posters, just as for 40 years when I drew for the New York Times op-ed page, although at some point I said I only want to do Middle East and Jewish subjects, before that I, I would do anything they gave me because just to be published in the Times. Although I did turn down articles, they once asked me to illustrate an article by Arafat and I wouldn't do it. The, the opera... I, I don't connect it with Jewish other than my need for researching a subject when I'm creating a work. And so a lot of research would go into what I was doing with those posters. For example, each of the posters, other than Cosi Fantute, has Mozart's handwritten manuscript as part of the poster, alongside the main characters, and then something related to the opera, such as the Arch of Titus for La Clemenza de Tito or for Domineo. I got the idea for that when I was in the Louvre looking at uh, ancient artifacts, and I got the idea to do each of the images of the characters on Greek vases. The series has similarities, but they're each different because I try to be original with each new work. I, I try not to repeat, for example, 
Mark Rothko, it was basically the same painting in different colors. I tried to do something original each time. I will say that on your Cosi Fan Today poster, I initially thought the women's dresses, their skirts were hamantashen. <laughs> so maybe I am hungry and reading, you know, because they kind of are like uh, like a flesh color. And then there's one is purple on the inside, one is orange. <laughs> well, there have been times when somebody pointed out something that was a better explanation than when I conceived the drawing. And so one is working on an unconscious level also. But I did not see how humantashins uh, figured into Cosifantute. <laughs> now you will. It sounds like you're entirely self-taught as an artist. Did you ever take classes? No, I never took classes. Junior high school or high school, the art teacher said, you have a talent, but I don't know what it's in, which is strange. I was very influenced by Mad Magazine as I grew up. And then it turns out that two of the leading editors of Mad Magazine were my patients. And one of them once said to me, Mark, you're a genius. And the other one used to give my the Seder plate I did for the Metropolitan Museum as wedding gift. And then over the years, because I only worked in black and white until I started to do children's books, Richard Lindner said, come to me, I'll teach you how to paint in color. But I was too embarrassed. And I was friends with David Levine, who is, I believe, the leading caricaturist in America who drew for the New York Review of Books. So David had a watercolor class. And he said, come to my class, you'll learn how to paint in color. But I was, I was just too embarrassed. I, I just didn't have the self-confidence. And then when my first exhibition was at Forum Gallery with my New Color Works, and Forum represented David also, David calls me the next day. And David, who did not give compliments, David said, Mark, looking at your color work, I feel I should come and study with you. So great, great compliment. Is there anything you, you'd like to do as an artist that you haven't done yet? Is there a, a commission you've wanted or a, a kind of a medium you've wanted to work in or a magazine or an, a cultural institution where you thought, oh, I'd love to do something for them and you, you haven't done it? Well, for years, I wanted to have a monograph published on my work. And then one of my patients, who is a leading French photographer, comes in, says, uh, Glitterati Edition just published a book of my work and they're going, I'm going to introduce you to the publisher. And she's going to publish a book on your work. And I thought, sure, I'm sure that's going to happen. And that's what happened. So Glitterati published a six-pound monograph on my work up to uh, 2016 with a foreword by Elie Wiesel, an essay by Cynthia Ozick, an essay by Elisheva Kalbach, who's the head of Jewish studies at Columbia. I've pretty much been very fortunate to do whatever I've dreamed of. And then things I never dreamed of, for instance, I was asked to design a 20-foot mural to be painted on the high school outside wall in my mother's birthplace in Poland. And that's going to be copied by a Polish muralist this spring. So different projects have come along that I would never have fantasized about. I would like to have a major retrospective somewhere. I've been in group exhibitions in the Jewish Museum in Berlin, in Vienna, in Paris, in New York. I, f I feel like I need to get into your dermatology practice because it's such an elite clientele. You asked what his artistic ambitions were that he hasn't actually done. Like, do you have any patients that you want someone to walk in your door? Like, you've always dreamed that one day you'd be able to treat them. No. <laughs> because he wishes melanoma on nobody. No, but when Mel Brooks walked into my office, he said, you have to tell me everything that you're doing. I'm an amateur doctor. And, I, and my response was, me too. <laughs> I love that. Well, thank you. This has been great. Thank I you really so much. This is no, great. Thank you very, very much for asking me. You may not like this new mailbox song, but we haven't heard from you in so long. So we thought we'd get your attention, shine a light. Come on, pick up your pen and Right. To the mailbox. Two thoughtful letters this week. Liel, would you like to read the first? Mark, Stephanie, Liel. I started exploring Judaism right around the start of this year's Sukkot, and about a month after listening to the pod, made the decision to connect with a rabbi to discuss conversion. Correlation? Causation? Who's to say? About Mark's rant last episode. Mark, your reaction at the coffee shop totally resonated with me. Didn't think you'd go there. If you don't mind a little remote podcast listener psychoanalysis, and uh, Justin, we live for remote listener psychoanalysis. Put me on your sofa, Justin. <laughs> That's exactly right. I personally have found that righteous indignation does a great job of covering up the deeper and more tragic feeling of deep compassion for someone hurting. Couldn't agree more. That life coaching client represents something that's increasingly the norm, a complete listlessness 
and lack of anchoring in the face of unrelenting and often terrifying change. The number of people I know personally who are finding themselves drowning in the current reality is remarkable. And it's easier to get angry at the life coaches who take advantage of that drowning, even as we recognize that the coaches are drowning themselves, than it is to confront the enormity of loss, confusion, and heartache across our communities. With deep appreciation, Justin. Justin, what an incredibly thoughtful and beautiful and moving note. And good luck on your, uh, on your journey home, man. Yeah, I just want to say the Facebook group had had at me about this one, about my rant, about this <laughs> oh, did they? conversation. And I, perhaps I could have made clearer that as horrified as I was by the whole thing, I really was more angry at the life coach who was probably charging a hefty hourly fee to give this woman what I took to be bogus advice. I don't, I don't blame anyone for being at sea. I think it's interesting to ask why some people are at sea and suffering so much and what we can change about society in terms of people being part of institutions and meaningful communities and family structures that give them some support so that they don't have to turn to, to shysters like this because I think that, that there was something bogus being sold. That was my read of the situation. But Justin, you were absolutely right to, to put us in a place of compassion and not judgment. By the way, can we add shyster to the list of words we want to investigate? This comes up like every few years. Whether it's Yiddish or not. Or like whether it's anti-Semitic, like whether it's based on Shylock, like a shyster lawyer. Um, no, no, definitely not <laughs> if we say it. Right. Shyster is not a Semitic. If a kike says it, it's fine. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Wait, where was I just reading about the person who said kike was okay? It was you. You were literally, oh, no, no, it was it was literally in you. It was in Tablet. It was in Tablet. It was the piece on George Platt Lines and Cecil Beaton and the the big anti-Semitic scandal in the um, in the art world in the 1920s, where somebody had put uh, an artist had put Kike in the tiny little margins of some art he had done, and then somebody noticed it. He'd clearly written so small, he hoped no one would notice, and was just having fun. And then somebody noticed it, and then one of the excuses offered was, "Well, I just thought it meant a vulgar person. I didn't know it meant a Jew." When I said those Jewy Jews Jewed me down, I didn't <laughs> <Right>. mean. <laughs> I just thought men of money grubbing Hebrew controlled banking and the media. I didn't know I, it was talking about Jewish people. <laughs> when I thought a Jew could get anyone I wanted in the entire world released from prison, I didn't mean a Jewish person. I just meant a Jewy Jew. I just meant a, a hook-nosed, you know, <laughs> horn cunning. Right. <laughs> Stephanie, you want to take us across the finish line? Yes. This next note takes us to task for our interview of Liz Lang. She writes, Dear Unorthodox, I was going to start this letter by saying I didn't feel at my place to criticize who you choose to interview, but I guess that's not quite accurate because your decision to entertain someone so out of touch as Liz Lang made me throw up a little. She opens the interview by claiming she doesn't want to be seen as another rich girl who got richer with a loan from daddy, but she gives no reason for us to view her as anything else. She describes her family as the just enough family, but from her story, it sounds like she always had more than enough, living on $500,000 a year, even when they lost their riches. She also describes Charlie's family from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as cozy, apparently having forgotten that this is a family of six living in a one-room, one-bed house with no heat that can barely afford to buy a kid a candy bar for his birthday. And though Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is fiction, I have students who live in similar circumstances. I'm sure they would be more than happy to swap with Miss Lang so she can finally have the cozy life of her dreams. And that shoestring budget she borrowed from her family, that's almost my entire year's salary. And Miss Lang should just keep that five to $10 million in the bank because it makes her feel safe. And her uncle underwrote programs at the University of Pennsylvania, so they've given enough already. No, if you are sitting on millions, you aren't giving enough. If you want to interview a millionaire, fine, but please don't play into her fantasy that her family is above reproach because they earned it. As respectfully as possible, Molly Marjorie Srogis. I loved this letter and agreed with 83.4% of it. And I should say, I liked Liz Lang. Obviously, I was the one who kept pushing her on how much money did you have? How much would you, would you need to feel safe? What I love about it is the, in addition to the general tone, is the, is the foray to literary criticism. It didn't even occur to me, right, that, yes, Charlie's family and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is not cozy. They're impoverished. And it's interesting that one would see it that way. But here's the thing. I actually want to go a step further than Molly Marjorie Srogis. And I want to speak to another part of the Liz Lang interview. I, you might have noticed, J. Crew, that I wasn't there for the last 10 or 15 minutes. I had to run. There was a family thing. So I actually heard part of it when I really listened to the episode. And she was talking with Liel and Stephanie. And she was talking about how some of the people who were always hating on her were obviously just jealous. And what's interesting to me, I actually felt sorry for her because when I see people with that much money I tend to think they're probably pretty sad. There's actually no part of me that wants $500 million. Don't get me wrong. Do I want $3 million? Yeah, but I don't want $500 million. And I'm not the least bit jealous. I actually think that it looks 
it looks like a horrible life. It looks like a cage and a prison. And I think it's hard to build self-esteem when you inherit that much, when you never have to work a day in your life. And I think her belief that the people judging her or criticizing her, that it's a flaw in them is a self-protective belief that may force someone from asking, would I have been happier in just anonymity and middle-class living? Because actually, I think people are happier that way. I mean, you want to know cozy? Seven people living in a three-bedroom house like mine, that's cozy, not six people living in a one-bedroom house. But there is a cozy, and it's not at $500 million a year. So I, I, I just thought there was something, when I heard the full interview, I was actually filled with compassion, not, not judgment. Can I say something, Mark? I, I, I totally hear you. And I think of the many charming qualities that you possess, this may be very close to the top because I completely believe you that, that you look at this with, with wonder. I, we've had many conversations about this. You, you look at it with wonder and with compassion. None of these uh, were qualities that I felt in Molly Marjorie Stroke's letter. And so I'd like to propose an experiment since Molly Marjorie Stroke believes that it's okay for people to decide for other people how much is enough to give? Molly Marjorie Strokes, if you have a car, I now decide that you must give your car to someone who doesn't have a car because you have enough. If you have a house, you know, you should share it with other people. If we're playing this game, let's play this game. The Peter Singer game that we should all be giving away a third of what we have. I mean, I think, I, I, I think that's unfair. I actually don't. There has to be a point you can make that because, Liel, that just disables every, you actually were criticizing that logic, right? Uh, that that sort of like, well, nobody can say anything because there's there's suffering in Yemen. That's, you're now you're using that same logic, which is, well, I'm not nobody can say anything unless, unless they're in poverty, they can't criticize. Well, actually, you know, there can be a reasonable critique that, well, first of all, we're all hypocrites to some level, right? That doesn't mean we're wrong. The reasonable critique could be, look, there should be laws that make sure that certain kind of demands are or needs are met and the government needs to do X, Y, Z. Not if you're sitting on millions, you aren't giving enough, which is a freaking Soviet statement. I think also what this does is completely ignore the fact that this woman took a very, 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 very small loan that, yes, she was fortunate enough to get. And with her creativity and her passion and her skill and her intelligence and her spirit, built a multi-million dollar business that employed a lot of people and made a lot of women very happy. And to ignore that is so, it's, it's post-human to not see that in someone as wonderful as Liz Lang. Well, no, she could have she could have seen that and still and still had critiques of of other parts of the interview, which I think was fair. I mean, I think what she's saying is it's out of touch, right? As, as that as hard as she's trying to be in touch, she's not trying to be in touch. I think the whole point of the show and the whole point of our interview with her is like she's honest to the fact that she is out of touch by having come from this world, and that is what she probes in the podcast. I don't know. I don't like to relitigate guests we've had on after the fact, but um, I'm interested in the conversation our listeners are having. Well, to lighten the mood just a little bit, the finest letter of the week was a, a call we got to our voicemail line, 914-570-4869. For those of you interested in uh, trying to top this, again, you can write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869 and try to leave something as delightful as this. Unorthodox. 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 Mazel Tov. I think we all know who gets a Mazel Tov this week. Who gets the big collective Mazel Tov this week? From all of us to you, Rabbi. Rabbi Charlie Citron Walker in Texas and all his congregants, we are so thrilled that you are safe and sound. Baruch Hashem Yom Yom. Shkoyach, kol hakavod, Mazel Tov, etc., unzo weiter, and so forth. 
Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Studios and hosted by me and Stephanie Butnick and Leah Leibowitz. Our executive producer is Josh Cross, who edits the show along with producers Robert Scaramucci and Quinn Waller. Our managing producer is Sarah Fredman Ader. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and or Facebook. And you can get Unorthodox swag at bit.ly slash unortho shirt. We're going to go back on the road. So if you want to book us for a live show, you might want to write to Josh Cross. That's J Cross, cross with a K at tabletmag.com. Our episode art is always by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music always by Golem. Our mailbox theme now and forever by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by the rabbi of the Central Synagogue of Earth, Rabbi Angela Warnick-Buchtal. And we come to you from the scattered home offices of Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends.